Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham. It's the 12th of December 1900, and in the United States, Winston Churchill was about to deliver a lecture about his experiences as a war reporter in South Africa, covering the Anglo-Boer War. Exactly a year earlier to the day, on the 12th of December 1899, he had escaped from a Boer prison in Pretoria. Now he was standing in the grand ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria in New York. It was the haunt of the rich and famous, and for once Churchill was nervous because he was being introduced by the great author Mark Twain, who was staunchly opposed to imperialism, and at 65, with his shock of unruly white hair, Twain generally spoke his mind without fear or favour. Churchill was aware this could be a difficult evening. He had sailed from Britain after winning a seat in Parliament for Oldham in the Kharki election of October 1900 and now sought to grow his influence further afield by going on the American lecture circuit. He also needed cash to fund his political career. His show came with slides and what was known at that time as a magic lantern, an early form of slide projector, which projected images on a screen while Churchill spoke. He could do this lecture in his sleep, his oratory skills already sharpened. Churchill had presented this lecture 29 times before in every large British city, starting immediately after the elections on the 30th of October in St. James's Hall in London. Evening after evening, except Sundays, he addressed large halls full of an adoring public. Churchill had made a tidy sum out of the British lecture circuit because at that time members of Parliament received no remuneration. So he knew that he needed a war chest for politics. And what better way than to talk about a war with a multimedia show thrown in? His income as a war reporter and royalty from his books had earned him over £4,000, and by the end of November, Churchill had doubled his savings to £8,000. But this trip to America was different. The Waldorf Astoria Committee membership involved in the Grand Ballroom speech were split on Churchill's lecture with some active Boer supporters who were furious about being publicly associated with the English war correspondent turned politician. Numerous letters to newspapers followed. There was a general spat between committee members and Americans lapped this up. And the demand for the lecture tickets grew exponentially while Churchill read about this and fretted. Martin Bosenbrook's work entitled The Boer War takes up the story. Apparently, Mark Twain's opening words on the evening of 12th of December 1900 did little to put Churchill at ease. Dressed as usual in white, Twain said he opposed the war in South Africa as he had opposed America's own war in the Philippines at the time. By the way, while I put this podcast together, it was announced in December 2018 that the USA had returned a number of church bells to the Philippines, which were seized as booty after that war. The US Army took the bells after an attack killed 48 American troops in 1901 during the US occupation of the Philippines. But now back to the Waldorf Astoria lecture in 1900 with Winston Churchill. While Twain admitted that he preferred a friendship between America and Britain, he had some reservations about the two countries' actions across the globe and said, America and England, he intoned, were kin in almost everything, but now they are kin in sin. And Twain was thinking specifically about South Africa and the Philippines. Nothing like the wonderful Mark Twain to coin a perfectly accurate and short description of that era's global politics. Still, 
Twain introduced Churchill as a blend of America and England which makes a perfect match. Starting nervously, eventually, Churchill gave a clear recital of his experiences in Natal, writing for the Morning Post, then his capture and a colourful description of his escape from prison in Pretoria. However, during the question time and discussion afterwards, things became a little more difficult for Churchill when he said, It's my country, good or bad. Mark Twain was angry and snapped back, When the poor country is fighting for its life, I agree, but this was not your case. During his Magic Lantern lecture in Boston, for example, a large number of Irish nationalists turned up and jeered Churchill loudly. It was only his self-effacing humor that saved him there, and this became his go-to technique when dealing with angry opponents face-to-face. He also began to reassess Britain's role in South Africa and lauded the Boers' courage and humanity. And fortunately, this magnanimity didn't last through his final tour around Canada, part of the Commonwealth, where he began to refer to General Christian de Wet as a bandit. Back in South Africa, these so-called bandits were about to deal General Clemens another blow in the Michalisburg mountain range, which lies west of Pretoria and Johannesburg. Last week, we heard how Jan Smuts and Costa Lare had ambushed a large relief convoy and either seized or destroyed 118 wagons on the road to Rustenburg through the mountains. As I said then, that was merely a precursor to the much more violent confrontation that was to take place in a few days' time at Neutgedacht. Loosely translated, it means never daylight. The success of the first ambush had whetted Smuts and Delaray's appetite for bigger game. General Clemens was that bigger game. He was a bull-necked Englishman who had done well in recent weeks in corralling the Boers and protecting the main routes out of Pretoria to the west. But one mistake changed all that. Smuts wrote later that General Clemens had selected a terrible spot to bivouac his troops. I do not think, Smuts said, It was possible to have selected a more fatal spot for a camp and one which gave better scope for Boer dash and ingenuity in storming the position. There were sheer walls on one side of over a thousand feet rearing over the Neutgedacht to the north and commanding the entire valley. Clemens, though, had two reasons to choose this site and neither had anything to do with defence. First, he needed to place a signalling station on the summit of the large mountain in order to send messages to Rustenburg 35 kilometers away in the shimmering plain to the northwest. The second reason was more prosaic. There was a magnificent mountain stream at Neutgedacht which plunged down a series of waterfalls. This meant clean and clear water for his men as they camped. The situation was about to become far more dire for General Clements because approaching from the northeast was another Boer commander under General Bayers. I've explained how Denise Reitz had joined Bayers along with two of his three brothers still fighting and they were approaching Clement's camp as well. This meant the English were about to be outnumbered, virtually unheard of in the war so far. But for Reitz the attack would be bittersweet, as we'll hear. He writes that General Clemens had many troops, wagons and guns, but Boer General Delaray pulled together a plan of action that would throw this camp into confusion. Smuts, Bayers and Delaray had three days to scope out what action to take. It was obvious too that General Clements and his intelligence units had no idea that a large number of Boers were close enough to smell his morning coffee. On the 12th of December, the same day Churchill was presenting his Magic Lantern show in New York, Generals Bayers, Delaray and Smuts reconnoitred the English position at Neutgedacht. 
It was then decided that half of General Bayer's 1,500 men would remain behind to keep an eye on Broadwood in case he sent reinforcements from Rustenburg, and the other 1,500 men of the three combined commanders would launch an attack on Neutgedacht at dawn the next day, 13 December. General Clemens had only 1,200 men facing the 1,500. This was the most complex battle plan the Boers had put together since January outside Ladysmith, where General Joubert's men had stormed the British at Caesar's camp and Wagon Hill. That's where our French hero, Georges de Villebois-Moriel, had worked tirelessly with Joubert. General Clements had further weakened his position by stationing only a cursory number of pickets along the path up to the signalling point, which meant those along this path were sitting ducks. General Bayer's men, including Denise Reitz, would roll up these pickets, while Commandant Badenhorst would detach from General Delaray's main force and attack the camp from the west. Generals Smuts and Delaray would then seize the small range of copies to the south of the British camp and surround the English. However, the problem for the Boers was the fact that this was a dawn attack, because that also meant a night march. And as we know, the night is a fickle ally, as Warshop had discovered at Marcusfontein, where he'd been trapped close to Delaray's commandos and been shot to pieces. Woodgate, too, had discovered the dangers of marching at night when he attacked at Spionkop and got lost. So after midnight on the 13th December, and virtually at the same time as Churchill was lecturing and Mark Twain was debating in New York, a large group of Boers began to move along the Machalisburg. The Boer guides, who were local and carrying lanterns, somehow lost their way. It was so dark that night, in a place called Neverday, that smuts marching from the south could not even make out the copies against the sky. Then, a small disaster for the Boers, for Commandant Badenhorst's men stumbled on the pickets northwest of General Clement's camp. Gunfire broke out, flashes of light and explosions echoed off the northern mountain slopes, and, after the short, sharp firefight, Silence. The British commander on the hillside called Lieutenant Colonel Legg was dead. The sun began to rise. Commandant Badenhorst was also forced to retreat, and Smuts was grinding his teeth to the south. The struggle with the pickets meant the British were forewarned. There were 300 British soldiers along the mountain under the command now of Captain Yatman. These pickets were desperately trying to relay a message to Broadwood in Rustenburg across the plain, but the dawn sun was still too weak for signalling, and there was a mist. General Bayer's men then attacked like British soldiers, charging from one group of pickets to the next, killing them as they went. 100 British casualties, a third of the entire force at this point, lay dead or wounded when the rush was over. And this is where Denise Reitz found himself face to face with the horrors of war once more. He was making his way up the hill towards these pickets, who initially thought they had succeeded in defending the crucial high ground. Rates wrote in his book Commando that, They set up loud shouts of triumph. Stung by their cries, our whole force on some sudden impulse started to its feet and went pouring forward. There was no stopping us now, and we went on, shouting and yelling, men dropping freely as we went. And almost before each man knew it, they were fighting to the death. We were swarming over the walls, shooting and clubbing in hand-to-hand conflict. It was sharp work. I have a confused recollection of fending bayonet thrusts and firing point-blank into men's faces. Within minutes, the initial assault was over. The surviving pickets surrendered. The Boers had lost 25 men dead, 75 wounded. That was a heavy price they'd paid for the success. But there were 100 British dead, 200 prisoners. 
General Bayers then sent a message saying they should continue their attack and Rates and the 12 others under the command of Krauser worked their way forward, but in their impatience the Boers stood up and four were immediately shot dead. The British who fired then ran down the path, but Rates shot one man through the thigh while Krauser killed a second. The rest escaped. Rates walked up to the man he'd shot. He had a nasty wound, but he was bandaging it himself with a first aid pad which they all carried and he said he could manage. He was a typical cockney and bore me so little ill will that he brought out a portrait of his wife and children and told me about them. They smoked a cigarette together. Then Rates continued on his way. He didn't know that 30 British soldiers were approaching him from below, sent by General Clements and the small Boer unit, and these men walked slap bang into each other. That firefight took less than 60 seconds. More than 20 men of the Imperial Yeomanry of London were dead, all lying in a small space of a few metres. General Bayer's men, including Rates, now could look directly down onto General Clements's camp and could see the British were retreating quickly, but in some order, dragging their guns with them. As Rates moved downwards, he thought he'd take a look at one of the British soldiers he'd just shot in the firefight. He wrote, I was horrified to see that my bullet had blown half his head away. The explanation being that during one of our patrols near the warm bars, I had found a few explosive Morser cartridges at a deserted trading station and had taken them for shooting game. He had loaded one of these cartridges from his bandolier as he ran, ramming it into the magazine without noticing. The use of these soft-nosed rounds or dum-dums was illegal in war then and remains so to this day. Which is curious because war is about killing. Rates considered what he'd done and wrote, I was distressed by my mistake, but there is not a great deal of difference between killing a man with an explosive bullet and smashing him with a Luddite shell. That comment predates the horrors of 1914-18, where flat-nosed ammunition was replaced by a terror of gas attacks, massive mine explosions, and death by drowning in mud-filled bomb craters. As Rates hurried down towards Clemens's camp in order to help loot the wagons, he passed two British officers. One had his thumb shot off, the other was cradling a broken arm damaged in the hand-to-hand fight. One asked if he spoke English. When he said he did, the English officer said, Will you tell me why you fellows are continuing the war because you are bound to lose? To which Rates replied, Oh, well, we'll see. we like Mr. Micawber. We are waiting for something to turn up. Wilkins Micawber is a clerk in Charles Dickens' novel David Copperfield. He is traditionally identified with the optimistic belief that something will turn up. The English officers burst into laughter. One turned to the other and said, Didn't I tell you this is a funny country? Now there's your typical young Boer quoting Dickens. Once again, however, Boer discipline let their generals down. The Boers rushed into Clemens' camp and began to ransack the tents and wagons. General Bayers rode into that camp in a furious rage and ordered his men to chase the retreating British, lashing about him with a shambok or whip. Rates wrote somewhat ironically that, "Uh, We thought otherwise. We considered that the object of the attack was to capture supplies and not soldiers, so we attended to the matter in hand. The matter in hand was looting. His brother now arrived with three of their horses. They took two more of the British horses and loaded these with money, tea, coffee, Salt, sugar, food, clothing, and what Rates calls other luxuries, including books. Another of the French mercenaries, Georges de Gouville, was lying nearby, badly wounded. 
Boer wounded lay along the entire trail into the camp and most of the wounded were left for the British medics to pick up rather than take along as they withdrew. General Clements, meanwhile, appears to have combined what could only be called folly with flair. He had lost half his force merely trying to signal Broadwood miles away in Rustenburg. Instead of concentrating his men and fighting off the attack, he had stretched them along a picket line. That was folly. The British had learned to their great cost what a mistake that was in the Battle of Isantlawan against the Isuzulu regiments 30 years before. What he personally achieved, though, in the moment of near-complete defeat was impressive, and largely down to his personal horsemanship, and that was flair. He rode back and forth, moving his 350 remaining men towards safety, on the top of a hill to the southeast called Yeomanry Hill. He immediately managed to save his big guns bar one, the powerful 4.7-inch naval gun. This heavy gun was loosened by its commander, Major Englefield, who crawled under fire, released it from its moorings on the side of a steep hill, broke it free, and then it rolled like an out-of-control tank straight through the camp below. Inglefield, who had been holding onto the side of the leaping beast, roped it up and had it dragged to Yeomanry Hill. General Smuts, meanwhile, and 300 Boers were attacking Yeomanry Hill from the south, but Clements managed to hold them off. The British were surrounded. All it would take now would be a follow-up attack by the Boers, and they were goners. It would have morphed from a disaster into a catastrophe. Instead, the Boers continued ransacking the empty British camp, drinking the brandy, setting fire to what they could find. Instead of destroying Clements and then attacking Rustenburg and perhaps dealing Broadwood a defeat and increasing Boer prestige and morale, they preferred to let their own ill-discipline reign. No wonder General Bayers was beside himself with fury. Smuts and Bayers and Delaray stood on a hill later that day at 4pm and watched General Clements withdraw with his surviving force back to Pretoria. Smuts blamed Bayers, saying his biblical technique in warfare of prayer then pillage was totally unsuited to the modern world. We heard about Jan Smuts's plan to form a large army then attack the mines of Johannesburg. This was clearly a pipe dream when you consider the complete anarchy of operations each Boer commander was forced to deal with. Smuts rode back to Clemens's burning camp at sunset, hearing the singing of hymns, swearing, shouting, gunshots, and then the thump of explosions. Smuts writes, What a sight met my eyes, an indescribable pandemonium in which psalm singing, looting, and general hilarity mingled with explosions of bullets and bombs. The British wagons were on fire, and a large number held ammunition, which exploded in the dark. As these rounds went off, pinging huge bits of shrapnel into the air and off nearby rocks, the Boers made memory. Smuts continues, Parties were wandering about the tents, looking for rare objects in the officers' kits. There, another group were discussing over a bottle of rum. Here, some zealous young fellows were poring over the papers of General Clements for some valuable information. While the scene from Dante's Inferno continued, on the other side of the camp, Reverend A.P. Creel thought it was a perfect moment to hold a prayer meeting. So, as the ammunition exploded and shrapnel whizzed about him, he opened his Bible and Smuts writes, Reverend A.P. Creel was eloquently expressing the feelings of joy and thanks of his large audience into which a broadside or volley would from time to time be poured from the fateful ammunition wagons. And watching from close by was the enigmatic Boer General de la Rey, a somber and gloomy man usually, but who for the first time in many months was now racked by laughter at the mad events he'd unleashed 
and was described as sitting bathed in the flickering light of the burning wagons, roaring loudly. Denise Rates, meanwhile, and his brother had completed their looting. They then had a glorious feast and, for the first time in 48 hours, lay down to sleep. The next day, 14 December, the Boers dug a mass grave for both Boer and British, and there they buried 200 of the dead side by side. And two days later, the Boers celebrated the Day of the Covenant on 16th December, commemorating the defeat of the Isuzulu at the Battle of Blood River. President Paul Kruger had been a little boy of nine when he witnessed that battle, where the Isuzulu warriors had launched full frontal attacks after frontal attack on a small group of Boers in Natal, but had been repulsed, leaving more than 3,000 dead. But what was there now to celebrate? 15,000 Boers were languishing in prison of war camps in Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, and St. Helena. Nooit gedacht was a major defeat for the British, but they still held all the main capitals of South Africa and controlled the railway line, the ports, and most of the roads. Thousands of Boer women and children were being rounded up and deposited in the notorious concentration camps. The victory so close to the important day of the covenant was morale-boosting, but once more showed up the weakness of Boer battle tactics. It's all good and well commenting now, 118 years later, but you must sympathize with these Boer generals, who were regarded at the time as the best military commanders in the world, Smuts, Boerter, Delaray, Bayers, De Wet. They were fighting a guerrilla war with men who believed in a form of democratic anarchy. So next week, we'll hear more about a Boer gathering at Naoport and how Lord Roberts is faring as he prepares to leave South Africa. Please remember to rate this podcast if you can and send me a note through our website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Daar waar mij